The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm Kevin Griffin. I'm an alcoholic and an addict, among other things. For the pur- our purposes, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Um, and uh, I say that uh, so that you know that I'm not uh, teaching out of a book, although I do have a book, as we, as we all know. <laughs> um, in fact, I, I can never remember what's in there, so it's one of the perils of either aging or smoking pot for too many years. Uh, and um, I've been you know, teaching on this topic for probably, probably about six years that it's been a regular thing. And, um, and I'm easily bored, so to teach the same thing over and over is not acceptable for me. So uh, that's why I was just writing down some notes because uh, there was some thoughts about what I, how I wanted to teach tonight. Are there more chairs in here? Cause, or bring those chairs in here. You're way, you're way too far out. That's, you'll be taking my inventory the whole time. It's terrible. Um, there's really a lot of space here. But anyway... Um, so this class uh, series will be five weeks, and uh, I was calculating that I'll have to, co- if I'm going to cover the 12 steps, that'll be uh, two and five-sevenths steps. No, it's not quite right. I, somebody a bit better with the math than I am, but it's a little, it's between two and three steps a night, so... Um, We'll see how that goes. There are certainly steps that I will be emphasizing. So my plan right now, as far as I'm going to plan, is that the first two weeks I'm going to cover steps one through three. And there could be some bleed in in there. Um, And I'll also be teaching really introductory meditation instructions, uh, which are pretty much the only meditation instructions there are, because it's really just, you know, starting at the beginning each time anyway. Much like a writer or a painter with a blank canvas, each time we sit down to meditate, we are faced with the same problem. Uh, uh, certainly, it's helpful if we've done it before because we remember how we solved our last problem because it's the same problem, only it's different. <laughs> Did I mention that? Um, so, uh, so we'll have plenty of time to meditate and, and um, have questions about meditation. Typically, an evening will be something like, we'll meditate for half an hour, we'll have questions until you run out of questions, we'll have a little break, then I'll talk about a step for a while, then we'll either do an interactive exercise where you guys talk to each other, or we'll do more kind of dis- focused discussion about the step. Um, So just out of curiosity, uh, how many people are here at IMC for the first time? Okay. That's actually a lower number than we often get. So welcome to all of you. Uh, this is a wonderful uh, spiritual home if you choose to make it su- such. Um, the founder, Gil Fronsdale, 
is a great teacher. Uh, I've practiced and studied with him and uh, always have learned a lot from being with him. It's also a remarkable place because uh, because it is completely supported by dana, by generosity. Dana is the Buddhist word. That it's a, from the Pali language, which was uh, is the language of the ancient Buddhist scriptures. There's Pali and there's dana, and I always think it's like some kind of song or something. There's, I know there's Odana. That's, I actually have written a song doing a shtick on that. But Pali, uh, I guess there's like some old folk song, Pali. Somebody probably remembers it. Anyway, uh, but they're not that, Dana and Pali. Okay, uh, see, this is the problem with being, getting bored easily. I also digress a lot. And um, so... A center that depends totally on dana, very few centers do that. Most of them will charge you a fee to come that will cover the expenses of the center and then will ask you to just give dana for the teachers. And that's the way it's done at Spirit Rock and many other centers. So uh, the fact that Gil and this community have been able to support themselves and really quite comfortably uh, on just generosity is a great testament to both him as a teacher and the community's sincerity of practice. Um, so, um, I would like to begin with some meditation. So, um, if you're sitting in a chair, best if you can sit with both feet on the floor or on something. Um, so that you're not crossing, crossing your legs. And, uh, what's more important uh, than the way you have your legs is, is the back. And to, and to sit in a way that you can be alert and the back can be straight without creating uh, tension or rigidity in the body. This is the first kind of balance that we have to achieve in meditation is to be both alert and relaxed. I guess, actually, before we get too far into this, I'll just recommend that if anyone has a telephone with them, they might want to turn it off or silence it. Um, easy to forget to do that. And so gently closing your eyes. And this practice is based on mindfulness, just being aware of what is as the fundamental tool. So it can be helpful to notice right now what you're feeling. What's your mood? As you start the evening, is there anything you brought with you, any concerns or stresses from the day? Rested? Is your body tense or so just asking yourself how you feel right now?
you can come up with a word or words or just feel into that. Open to that. Meditation isn't some special activity that removes us from ourselves. In fact, it's just the opposite. It brings us closer to ourselves. If we try to ignore how we feel, it will only undermine our attempts at becoming quiet or present. Now doing some conscious relaxation, relaxing the muscles in the face, the jaw, the eyes and the forehead. Relaxing the shoulders, the arms and hands. Notice if the mind is drawn to sounds. You can just notice sound. Whatever becomes dominant in mindfulness meditation, we turn ourselves to, turn towards it rather than trying to shut it out. Open to that. Let it move through. And coming back to the body, softening the belly, a place where a lot of emotions can get stuck. and relaxing the legs and feet. Having a sense of the whole body sitting here in the cushion or in the chair. Just sitting. Can you feel 
the body as one thing, as one object. within that single object are a whole myriad of sensations. We can experience the body as one thing and many things at the same time. Now starting to focus on the breath. First just noticing the whole of the breath. Feeling the breath at the nostrils as it enters the body. Then the chest and belly as they Expand and contract and the air leaves the body. And after feeling a few breaths like this, see where it's easiest for you to feel the breath. What single point, either the nostrils or the belly, perhaps the chest. And let that spot become your main focal point. beginning to bring the attention in more closely to the sensations of the breath at that single point. You might feel the air at the nostrils moving in and out, or the movement of the belly or chest. not controlling the breath itself, just breathing naturally and then seeing what 
that feels like. And not trying to create some special experience or waiting for something to happen. Just relaxing into this present moment of breathing, of breath. be helpful to use some anchoring words to help you stay with the breath. So if you're following the breath at the nostrils, you can say to yourself, in, out, as the air moves in and out. Or if you're feeling the breath at the chest or belly, rising, falling with the movement Or you can find your own words. Letting the words be in the background as the sensations are in the foreground of your awareness. As you try to stay with the breath, it's completely natural that the mind will wander, that you'll drift into thinking, thoughts or images appear in the mind, take us away. Whenever you wake up and realize that you're not paying attention to the breath, that you're lost in thought. Acknowledge that. You can make a mental note, thinking, thinking, or just silently acknowledge to yourself that you're thinking. And then gently come back to the breath, trying not to add a judgment or commentary, 
And then starting again by focusing on the sensations of breathing, relaxing, settling back into the present moment. Starting again. same way if the attention is caught by sound or some sensations in the body. Acknowledge that. You don't have to push anything away. Just come back to the breath. helpful to also notice your reaction to your experiences, how you react to sound or sensations, how you react to an emotion or a thought. Just seeing these automatic and habitual ways of reacting to the world. the key aspect of mindfulness.
our experience keeps changing. Even something as simple as the breath With mindfulness, we try to be present with that change. Noticing the uniqueness of each moment. Be aware of changing energy as you become more settled, 
mind might become foggy, the body dull. Notice if your posture is collapsing. You can open the eyes if you become sleepy.
So are there any questions about uh, meditation practice? You're welcome to come sit up front here. There's actually quite a lot of room on the floor. Yes. Do you have to be sitting straight up in a chair? Um, You can meditate lying down. Um, There's a tendency to fall asleep, which uh, isn't helpful. So that's certainly, it's one of the four postures. The traditional four postures are sitting, standing, walking, and lying down um, that the Buddha taught mindfulness in or that said said we could be mindful in those postures. Um, so it's something to experiment with, uh, but it's, uh, it's challenging to stay awake. That's the main problem. Other than that, great. Well, I don't believe you. <laughs> you can grab the microphone. Um, could you tell me for a beginner how long you... The minimum would be, found it should be a little too long. Minimum, one breath. What is is most important is to take the time, to set aside some time. And um, certainly, if it's difficult for you to sit still, you feel very challenged by it, it's better to sit for a short amount of time than to set some model of what it should be and then not do it because you can't achieve that. That being said, um, 20 minutes is a typical kind of baseline for a period because it sort of takes about 20 minutes to really settle in. Um, And from there, you know, you just keep expanding until you go on a three-month retreat, you know. I, you know, I just taught in Los Angeles this weekend, uh, and I've just been noticing the different cultures, because I was in Sacramento a couple of weeks ago, and the kind of different, like everybody here is just really polite, I can tell you don't want to ask a question because you're just too In L.A. it was like, uh, I need to, you know, I came here because I wanted to get this out of this day today, and I want to know how I'm going to get that from you. <laughs> I was like, uh, well... Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. So I have this funny thing where uh, it's I'm it's real easy for me to meditate in trees. What's up with that? Are there any other questions? Uh, you. How? What posture do you use in the trees? You just wedge sit down head. and lean against one. Do you have a tree house? Or no. Uh, yeah, amongst trees. Oh, okay. I mean, I thought you, you climbed up into trees. Okay. Yeah. I okay. You so, were like, what was that woman's name? Daryl. No, no, there was another. Anyway. No, I'm talking about just going out in the forest and having a seat. Well, that's where the, what the Buddha taught. He said, go sit under a tree. So you're probably a reincarnated monk. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. Nature, you know, it's great. To, I mean, you know, 
there, there's definitely a different energy to sitting in nature. Um, and if you're comfortable there, that's great. Um, it's not very quiet. You know, it's surprisingly, right? You go out and you think nature's quiet. It's not quiet at all. It's really loud. And then there's creepy crawly things. And then there's crunchy, crunchy things. And after about two minutes, I go back to my house, you know, just because I'm not a nature boy. But, uh, but that's great if that, if, you know, if you're comfortable. I mean, you know, the only thing I would say is like, don't be like, oh, well, I can't meditate because there's no trees around, you know. But other than that, it's great, um, wonderful, very nice. Enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that maybe that's why people don't want? It. It's because they're recording them. The quest, so it's all. Then people can listen on the internet, and you don't. They won't know who you are when you ask a stupid question. So it will be like nothing, or an intelligent question. No, Your ego I, won't get anything either way. Sorry. I wanted to ask about um, the tension that I sometimes feel at the beginning of a meditation in my shoulders mm-hmm. and just holding my body still. Um, I've uh, practiced like isometrics, you know, and in beginning yoga where you tense up each muscle mm-hmm. and then relax. Mm-hmm. Do you advise that in this kind of meditation? Um, it's not something that I do, but it's certainly if that's helpful for you to get started, that's uh, you know that sounds like it could be helpful. Uh, you know, I mean, if it works for you, uh, you know, not to obviously spend the whole time doing that, but if that's a good way for you to settle in, that sounds great. Uh, I mean, certainly one of the hardest things is to kind of get into those first few minutes of meditation, and um, you know, there, there's a way. I mean. The, it, in a way, that, that relaxation or that softening sort of happens naturally just by sitting and breathing and being present. But if you want to kind of awaken it and encourage it, and that's helpful, that's great, sure. I just noticed that when I slouch my shoulders, mm-hmm. it just I have a tendency to do that. Yeah. But if I try putting them back, then it feels, you know, so I'm, I'm just yeah. kind of, you know, trying to figure out how to get comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> the body is a problem. <laughs> and um, there's sort of the, one of the things we can get the idea that the body is getting in the way of our meditation. But really, if the body is calling to you, or if that's what's where there's a strong experience happening, strong sensations, then that can become your meditation. So that's the thing about mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't about creating an experience. or try, You know, when we hear the word meditation, it kind of sounds like, oh, I'm going to be really relaxed and peaceful and maybe even blissful, you know. And then you sit down and your thoughts spin out and your body's all uncomfortable and you're going, I must be doing this wrong or I've got the wrong, I should go to that other meditation center down the street, they promised me, you know, this. But um, it's really, you're just, when we come out of our thoughts, out of our minds for a moment, 
we discover what the Buddha called dukkha or suffering, the kind of inherent unsatisfactoriness of existence, which was really what he was trying to solve. And it's sometimes it's very subtle, sometimes it's very obvious. Uh, and, and it's not that we're always uncomfortable or that, you know, we never have a nice, a good time or that we're never happy. That's not the point at all. But certainly when we sit down and try to sit still, uh, when we begin that process, we discover that there's a lot going on. And, and the, uh, the approach of mindfulness is not to try to push that aside and get to something else, but it's to say, wow, this is what's going on. Can I just be present with this? And can I be present with this without either trying to fix it or running away from it? Uh, And it's very much related to me to the impulse to addiction because we find that when as soon as there's discomfort, we want to do something about it. We don't want to feel discomfort, which is one of the underlying drives, not even underlying, one of the main drives that causes addiction is our unwillingness, inability to just be present with the unpleasant. The other one, the other main piece of addiction is the craving to feel good. So there's the aversion to the uncomfortable and then there's the desire for the pleasant. Um, And you'll find that as you sit in meditation that both of those energies will appear both emotionally, mentally, in your thoughts uh, and just as an impulse. So the place we're kind of aiming for is the place of just being able to be centered and balanced and accepting with whatever comes. And this is the real skill that, that, that we are developing, that has to be developed in meditation. Our first reaction is naturally like, oh, my body hurts. What am I supposed to do about that? How do I make that go away? You know, I'm thinking too much. How do I make those, my thoughts go away? And those are the kind of, you know, those are natural responses to this experience. But mindfulness, we don't offer a solution to that exactly. The solution really, the way out is through. And the power of mindfulness is that when we engage in that way, it's not that we stay, it stays like, oh, I'm just sitting here for half an hour just feeling lousy or, you know, being anxious or whatever the thing is that's going on for you, that the mindfulness itself has a healing quality. And if we trust in that, then we find that we move, we move through the experience by allowing it in. Um, and we allow, it's just our presence, the, that engaged presence that allows the experience to you know, be so, kind of self-healing. Uh, that's, if there's any magic to this practice, that's it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, during this mindful meditation, are you going to be speaking and guiding us the whole time? 
Would you like me to shut up? Is that what you're well, I like blissing out, actually, which is probably what I shouldn't be doing, I guess. If you're really blissing out, then my voice shouldn't be a problem. No, it's not, but, you know, there's t- it, just not used to it. Yeah, well... Just a question. No. Um, different times I'll be guiding different amounts. Tonight, being the first night, I wanted to really stay with people. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel the same way in terms of my own practice, but... Uh, So let's take about, it's, it's about uh, eight minutes of eight. Let's take an eight-minute break. And we'll ring a bell in seven minutes. I was asked if I would uh, talk about my experiences in India and Nepal, but I've never been uh, to Asia, so... <laughs> Uh, really, you know. Uh, I was too busy with other things to be traveling around. I was traveling around like upstate New York playing in holiday inns when other people were going to Asia, I guess. Um, so uh, it, it kind of occurred to me that uh, maybe there were some things that people uh, wanted to um, cover. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just, well, we'll have time for questions later. But if at some point, you know, you feel like something isn't getting addressed that you really wanted to get into over these uh, couple of weeks, please let me know. You can speak to me, write to me, send me a telegram. I don't know. Um, so I, th- I wanted to begin at the beginning, step one, and uh, see if we can talk a little bit about um, how we connect, connect this process with, with Buddhist teachings and with meditation, and also partly to kind of just talk about the steps. Um, so I... You know, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and so my version of the step, or the the Alcoholics Anonymous version of the step, is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable. And um, I say that because uh, this isn't an AA meeting, and it's not a 12-step, it's not affiliated with any uh, 12-step program, and... um, and I hope that there are people from many programs. Usually, uh, usually people from all kinds of different programs come, and so. Uh, and and it seems to be, for one thing, a lot of people from food programs come to my groups. Um, so. Uh, so the question of the substance isn't really, or the behavior, um, isn't really the point. And it's not so much what I'll talk about. And I'll also say that sometimes I will refer to alcoholics or usually addicts and alcoholics or sometimes addicts. I prefer the word addict to cover kind of everything. Um, and and so if you are in some program like Al-Anon or something that doesn't sort of identify as being an addict, I hope you will kind of in, uh, translate 
for yourself. I, 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 it's just a matter of shorthand because if I list every substance and program every time I say that, it just it gets tedious. So, so um, one of the ways to look at step one from a Buddhist viewpoint um, is to think of it as awakening to right view, which is the first step in the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddhist sort of path of freedom, comparable to the Twelve Steps. Um, and right view, with right view, we see we see the Dharma, we see the truth of the way things are, and, and the, the, the fundamental aspect of right view is seeing the truth of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering is the starting point. And this obviously parallels what um, step one is seeing. We talk about uh, being in denial. So before we before we have right view, you know, our eyes are closed or are clouded. Uh, before we admit that we're powerless. We were in this state of, of not seeing uh, our addiction in some way. And I, and I was thinking about that word denial today and feeling like it's not quite how, how I see that. I think, that. I think there are times when people, because the word denial implies something intentional. I deny that. Like, hey, you're an alcoholic. I deny it. You know? And so there's sort of an intentional uh, rejection. And certainly that's the case for some people. But I think what's more common is uh, a lack of awareness before that before maybe and maybe after we become aware, then we deny it. But first, there's this lack of awareness, which in Buddhism, we call it ignorance or delusion. It's one of the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion. So in delusion, we just don't see the way things are. And, and we live in this. Uh, living this lie and this confusion. So it's not really intentional. Uh, And it's very difficult to come out of delusion or ignorance in the same way that it's very difficult when you're meditating to come out of a thought. You're spacing out. I mean, what allows you to stop spacing out when you're spacing out? It's kind of mysterious. That's one of the things about meditation. Like, how is it that I just woke up and realized, oh, I was thinking? You know, I'm not, I'm, I don't have an answer to that question. And, and it's some, but the, the only thing we know in, you know in Buddhist terms is that everything comes as the result of some cause. So there is a cause for it. And so we could go back and say, well, there's, we've developed some amount of mindfulness and concentration, and that allows that to happen. And the same can kind of be said about um, how do we wake up to the fact that we're addicts or alcoholics, that, that um, you know, people often say, well, it was just through the grace of God or, um, you know, that I didn't do it. And, and um, I can certainly understand that. I, you know, I, I feel that way myself. But I, but because of the, I really believe in the teachings of Buddhism, which say that everything has a cause. I'm not willing to accept the idea that 
some external magical force intervened in my life because I, I don't believe in external magical forces. Uh, so that means that I actually got sober because there were causes for it. And so I've kind of gone back and realized that one of the ways that recovery is portrayed in, in the, at least in the meetings that I've been in, is kind of I mean, one of the ways is, you know, sober, good, you know, before sober, bad. <laughs> and then I crossed this line. I went from bad to good. And there was just this sort of magical thing that happened. Right. But in, again, in Buddhist terms, that's not an acceptable explanation. There had to have been something good in, mixed in with that bad. And indeed, you know, I think for most of us, if we go back and look at the whole of our lives leading up to the time when we came into recovery, when right view revealed itself, when we admitted we were powerless, there were, there were positive things. We weren't just horrible people doing stupid, you know, horrible things all the time. There was, for most of us, I, I would say for all of us, that there were competing forces within us, good and bad forces competing with us. And at a certain point, the kind of good finally overcame that negative stuff enough for us to take that step. That's important for me, too, in terms of my self-esteem, in terms of how I think about myself. You know, because there is a way in which you know, uh, in, you know, you can get kind of this, uh, you know, very negative feeling about yourself being an addict. And, and, you know, and God forbid you should slip, then you're bad again. You know, I was good for a while, then I went back to being bad. You know, uh, and how do I get to be good again? I don't know how, because I'm bad, you know, and, you know, and that, as funny as it sounds, it's, it, there's some truth to it, right? That they're really, they're, this is one of the reasons why it can be very hard for people to get sober again after slipping. So this waking up, this, this uh, right view is a, is a moment of insight. You know, the word insight in our culture, uh, I think, is mostly associated with having a good idea or having a, a clear idea of something. But in the meditation practice that we talk about as mindfulness nowadays is really insight meditation. This place is called the Insight Meditation Center, by the way. Well, what that insight really is, is not so much a thought, but a realization. You know, realizing, you know, the, the first step is a realization. It's not... Hmm, I just figured out that I'm an alcoholic. No, it isn't quite like that, right? It's like a light goes on. And it's a transforming insight, which is the most powerful kind of insight, actually. There are insights when you see something, you go, wow, I, you know, I, I really get that now. But you can't really necessarily change your behavior right away, or maybe at all. But it might not be that kind of insight. But the insight into addiction is a transforming insight, very powerful. And in fact, I would say that it is a spiritual awakening, which, you know, is interesting because it 
at the last step says that having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Well, I always used to think that that meant you had to go through all 12, 11 steps before that, and then you would have a spiritual awakening. But I don't believe that anymore. I believe that the first step and every step involves a spiritual awakening. And the, the spiritual awakening of the first step is awakening to your addiction. And the transforming insight is that the awakening is not only seeing it, but it's a letting go. And that's what the difference between a transforming insight and a regular insight is. A transforming insight, there's a complete uprooting, a, letting, a complete letting go. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, this step, uh, you know, many of the steps have controversial words in them. And a lot of my work has been around those words. And the controversial word in step one is the word powerless, I would say. Many people resist this word. Um, and um, there seems there's a lot of confusion around the word there. I think there's a lot of uh, mis uh, understanding of the word. Um, that's my opinion, of course. Um, so I, I, I'd like to talk about the word powerless. So first of all, I, I think it's the wrong word for what they were talking about. But I think that one of the things that the people who wrote the 12-step literature were doing were using words that were very powerful and really got your attention and uh, shook you up in a way. Um, and, and also trying to make something succinct so that the steps didn't go on for like 10 or 15 pages. You know, they're just like they're very, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And, you know, in a way, you know, so um, the way that I think they are literally accurate is that is when they t when they're talking about someone who once they take a drink can't control can't stop necessarily and I, w I wasn't uh, a uh, daily drunk I was a daily drug and alcohol taker <laughs> but I didn't get drunk every day so I wasn't like totally powerless over alcohol, where if I had a sip of alcohol, I just went on a run. But I was powerless over alcohol in that sometimes I went on a run. <laughs> and sometimes I would know I was going to, and sometimes I wouldn't know. And the fact that I didn't know and that I couldn't control it, to me, means that I didn't have, that that's how I define my powerlessness. But I think what a, a more accurate word is control, is that I couldn't control alcohol. I couldn't control my use of alcohol. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I, there, I, I don't mean to open up like an, a debate about whether that's right or not, but, but get more at the point that um, If, if, we're resist, if we're resisting this idea that we have no power, if we can say, well, can you control it? And, well, no, I can't control it. But that doesn't mean I don't have any power. Okay, then, then, you, then you can do this step. Right? Um, now, the, the, this word powerless doesn't really show up in 
of Buddhist teachings, but it's implied in some of the fundamental teachings. Um, the, the Buddha recommended that each day we contemplate the inevitability of change in the form of sickness, old age, and death, and loss. And the fact that these things are inevitable means that we are powerless over them. And, and really, if we look at a lot of the kind of key teachings in, in Buddhism, the teaching on suffering, the teaching on impermanence, uh, these are things that we don't have control over, that in fact have control over us. And that's something I'll talk about more in step two and step three. But this larger issue, seeing, you know, sometimes people t- say, oh, well, I'm powerless over everything. And they kind of go, well, I don't think that's true. You know, and, and that sort of implies a helplessness or, uh, that, or a, no responsibility. And, and that's very much against both Buddhist and 12-step teachings. I mean, the 12-steps are very much about being responsible, right? So that, I think that's really not quite getting it. But um, the thing is, the, 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 the problem that I think we have as addicts is that we want to control the things that we can't control, but we don't want to be responsible for the things that we're responsible for. So we don't want to control the things we are and do something. So acceptance, you know, which is obviously a great, you know, a very important quote in the big book about acceptance, the importance of acceptance, is really key to both accepting our disease and accepting sickness, old age, and death, accepting impermanence, accepting suffering, all of that. And those, this is all under this greater realm of powerlessness. Um, and and the, you know, the, the kind of spiritual approach to that is called surrender. Just letting go, surrendering to the inevitable, to what is true. Um, and so when we sit down to meditate, to, to get it more into the specifics of this practice, one thing we can say, one thing we can say about that, or just one way of describing what we're doing, is we're sitting down and just being with the way things are, and 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 sitting down with an attitude that I'm going to see if I can be with whatever is without trying to change it, without trying to control it, and just be present with it. So my responsibility is to try to be present. What I don't have control over is the thoughts that might come through my mind, the emotions that might come through me, the sensations that might appear in my body, all of that, or the noises you know that come from outside. Um, so we're we're kind of sitting down with an attitude of practicing powerlessness. This is in some ways what we are doing in meditation. Practicing powerlessness, just saying, I'm going to sit here and not try to fix anything. You know? And what happens? And, and so practicing powerlessness is also practicing acceptance. But again, finding out what can I do something about? So in Buddhism, we talk about right effort. So it's not that you know, meditation is a passive activity. Anything but 
right? I mean, it's kind of another one of those mistaken uh, impressions people get. Well, you see people sitting so quiet, they're just sitting still, they're doing nothing. But when you sit down and do, try to do nothing, of course, a lot happens. A lot goes on. And you have a role in that. How to make an effort to stay present. How to come back from spacing out. How do we do that? Well, what we do is we just over and over, every time we notice we're spacing out, we come back over and over. And we're gradually training ourselves to just stay. Just as Jack Cornfield's analogy with the puppy, just bring him back, stay. He runs off, bring him back, stay. And gradually the puppy learns. You know. And our minds are about as smart as a puppy, you know. <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, we're, uh, you would think with all our intelligence, we would just be able to say to ourselves once, stay. Right? <laughs> that should be enough. But no. In fact, puppies actually learn faster, <laughs> now that I think of it. So another aspect of powerlessness that I think is uh, implicit, and I think we, we kind of all know, but I think is good to make explicit, is... What happens before the powerlessness, uh, before, before we succumb to the, the power of the alcohol or the drugs or sex or the gambling, or the food? And that is um, the obsession and the compulsion. These are uh, more difficult to manage in some ways than substances, because with a substance you can, it's very obvious you're picking it up, you know, and you can more easily, if you're not obsessed, not pick it up. And it's an action. You know. Thoughts, as we know, are much harder to control. So obsession, I would say, is. Not, certainly not original, but obsession is the mind getting caught on an idea and not being able to let, let go of it. And then compulsion is the, uh, the craving or the, the, really the need to act out of that obsession, which, which is unde- the undeniable you know, need to act out of that obsession. So... It seems to me that once you get to the level of compulsion, it's really, really tough to turn back. You know, that's when you're supposed to call your sponsor. You know, and rarely does it happen. So, let's go back to obsession. Another very tough place to get out of because, as we know... The, it's very hard to realize that you are thinking when you are caught up in thinking. And when you are caught up in that kind of thinking, uh, obsession has the quality, obsessive desire has the quality of 
focusing the mind. Actually, it's a very concentrated state. Unfortunately, it's concentrated on a destructive thing. And it has a focus that there's only one thing that I care about. There's only one thing I want. There's only one thing I'm going to do. In fact, it's not even, there's only one thing that I can do. That's the feeling with obsession. I must do this. There's no choice. And this is why mindfulness is an antidote. Because mindfulness is this, has this quality of opening up our experience to see the whole of a situation and to see that there are choices. Immediately with mindfulness, as soon as we're mindful, we go, oh, I can turn left or right. You know, I can go straight. I can go back. You know, I realize that. With obsession, it's just I must keep going in this direction. And it's interesting that I read an article about uh, it was actually about when uh, John Kennedy Jr. Um, crashed his airplane. It was, a, it was an article about panic in the New Yorker some years ago. And it said that in the state of panic, people have, uh, the reason people kind of mess up is that they, um, they get focused on one thing. They can't think of anything else. So someone who's flying a plane will start to think, I've got to, you know, pull this lever. This is this is the solution. Not realizing like, no, there's a light flashing over there that's telling you push push me, you know, and and. um, Sorry. And that, you know, it just strikes me how similar that is to uh, alcoholic or addictive obsession. So there's some kind of connection in there. I'm not sure what it is, but panic, you know, panic is a survival mechanism. And and I think that our addiction is kind of a misguided kind of survival. It's an attempt at survival. It's kind of a really um, confused um, reaction to some feeling that we're going to die you know, if we don't do this. So, as I look at this process of obsession and then compulsion, what my experience is that there are triggers for obsession. And that's what the hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt acronym is about. It's about things that trigger us for our addiction. You know, I get tired and then I start kind of thinking about a nice warm martini or I don't know. <laughs> Never drank martinis. A warm martini, that sounds horrible. <laughs> a martini sounds horrible anyway to me, but my mother loved them. Um, maybe that's why it sounds horrible to me. <laughs> but we, you know, our defenses come down when we're tired or we're you know, lonely, and we're trying to fill ourselves up. We go to the refrigerator and start, you know, grab the half gallon of ice cream. Um, so the so the halt is supposed to, of course, remind us. It's supposed to snap us out of the obsession, or to actually, I think, to help us to avoid the obsession. To realize, wow, I'm I'm lonely. I should make a phone call because otherwise, I'm going to go in a bad direction. 
But I, I, I found in my experience, and I, I think most of you will probably agree, that there are many other triggers. And one of the keys to uh, staying sober and to um, working with really uh, any kind of uh, destructive acti- behaviors is to avoid the triggers. And this is the first aspect of the Buddha's four great efforts. The first great effort is to avoid those things that uh, arouse negative mind states. Um, And so avoiding triggers is a way to not set off the obsession. And this is the place where I think we can actually get some work done. I think, as I say, once the obsession starts, it's very hard to get out of that. And once you're into the compulsion, you know, it might be a long time till you come back until you wake up. So um, I'd like to actually do an exercise around triggers. Um, And this will be something we'll do some of the evenings. Uh, And so I'm going to teach a little bit more about mindful speaking because I'm going to ask you to talk to each other. I'm going to teach a little bit more about that tonight and then hope that you will remember the basics of it uh, the other nights. And I'll, I'll remind you, but, um, but I'll give more of the extensive um, instruction tonight. So, um, so mindful listening and mindful speaking. These are the two things you'll be doing. Mindful listening is a little easier to explain, probably a little easier to do, uh, although it depends on the, on the individual. Mindful, with mindful listening, you are simply making the person who is speaking to you the object of your meditation. Instead of, instead of paying attention to your breath, you're paying attention to them and to what they're saying. And as you listen to them, you drop anything that interrupts. So any thoughts that appear as you're listening, you know, any judgments or comments, sort of your mind going off rehearsing for your turn, you know, just as soon as you notice it, you just drop it and you just come back to listening. Just drop it, come back. And it's an interesting, that in itself is an interesting process. If you haven't done this before, I think you'll find it interesting. It's if not at least valuable. Um, It can be helpful to keep some attention in the body as you're listening and as you're speaking. So you can do that in whatever way. You can kind of experiment with that. Some people find it helpful to pay attention to their limbs because they're more neutral emotionally. Other people rather connect with their emotions and kind of feel the kind of viscera as they're listening, the belly, the chest. you might feel your breath as you're listening, if that's where you're drawn. But having some, grounding some attention in the body kind of just helps you to stay present. And you find that um, there's kind of this uh, spectrum of, of awareness that uh, you can be quite aware of your body and listen without missing a word. Uh, in the same way that you can be thinking and listening without missing a word, but it's not 
with the same uh, you know depth of hearing. So um, so to, to play with that with your listening, with sp- mindful speaking is more challenging, really because the you know words are kind of the currency of ego. So when you open the mouth, ego tends to come out. Right? Um, the story, you know, how you want to portray yourself, your memories about, you know, as you've constructed them, you know, um, who you want to be, you know, how you want to appear. So as much as possible to try to go below that, to go into the heart, you know, the, 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 the deeper truth. And, you know, people who are used to sharing in meetings, you know, know about this place, about, about speaking from the heart. Um, so you can draw from that kind of depth of honesty and also really trying to stay in your body. So staying present as you're doing it. So you're not sort of going uh, too much into the head. You know, so, uh, it can actually some people find it helpful to actually put a hand on their heart as they speak. And it, it kind of grounds you and, and you'll notice that you'll actually speak a little bit differently. Um, you know, the Buddhist instructions were to say what is true and what's helpful at the, at the right time. And this is the right time, because I'm telling you it is. <laughs> uh, for whatever, you know, for whatever depth of sharing you want to share. Obviously, you know, you know first of all, I would say, please maintain confidentiality. And, and really, that should be an agreement amongst us anyway in this group because by being here there's kind of an implicit statement that you're in a program and those are supposed to be anonymous so kind of respecting that Um, but to say what is true is that's a very subtle question what is true how do I know that this is true what I'm saying Uh, well I remember it well how do you know that your memories are true (laughs) and our language tends to uh, toward kind of making absolute statements like I always do this or I never do that. Um, and, you know, I should do this. I shouldn't do that. So really watching just your use of language so that you're being more precise. And this is a good tool to use just in, in speech anyway. But it's a good tool to use for right, right speech. Um, so to modulate your language in the ways that uh, so that you can say it seems like I always or I feel as though I usually or it seems like I should, you know, kind of framing things just so that it's true. Well, it seems that way to me because then you're expressing just how you feel. You're not saying this is an absolute truth or an absolute fact. Um, the, f- finally, about um speech to try to pause and wait for the full truth to kind of come up rather than feeling like you've got to speak. You're not going to be interrupted because your partner's going to be silent when, they're li- when you're speaking. Um, so you can kind of take your time and let the thoughts come up and really see just before you speak, you always know what you're about to say, even though usually we don't notice that. But if you, when you slow down a little bit, you realize, oh, 
the thought is formed in the mind before it's spoken. And so in that split second, you can kind of see, does this need to be kind of modified? And I don't mean editing it for, you know, uh, to make it PG or something, you know, but editing it for, you know, truth. So that's a lot, and I don't expect you to remember everything I'm saying, but I hope you get the spirit of that. Um, and, and what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is to pair off, and then I'm going to, get, then I'm going to suggest that you talk about what triggers you have, either for your identified addiction or for just kind of the negative places that you go. They could be emotional states. They could be other behaviors that are uh, not identified as addictions or could be identified as addictions, but you haven't decided to yet, you know. Um, and, and to just uh, look at the things that set you off. And they could be, you know, what sets you off into anger, what sets you off into sadness, into anxiety. Uh, but just noticing what are, what are you, the triggers you have. And they could be, you know, the whole range. It could be halt. They could be many, many different things. It could be your mother, you know. Um, it could be the weather, you know. It could be the winter. It could be a holiday. Who knows? Um, so, any questions before we go into the the pairing? What? So I'll I'll ring a bell. But you, I'll, I'm just going to give each person about three or four minutes, probably maybe four or five minutes, but somewhere in there. And, and each person will, so in the beginning, you'll decide who's going to speak first, and then I'll we'll ring a bell, and then after a few minutes, I'll ring the bell, we'll come to silence, and then you just switch roles and do that. Yeah. 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 You don't know. That's not necessary. I mean, I would suggest if we are with your partner that you not do it with them necessarily. You know, you could, but just in terms of kind of making it fresh. Uh, so, but it's okay if you know them. Yeah. Did you have a question back there? Okay, well, I'll just say two things. One is you, you don't have to share on any share anything that you're not comfortable with. And two, if you don't want to do the exercise, that's fine, but you don't have, that doesn't mean you have to leave. Because it's only going to be about ten minutes, and you, I'd much prefer that you got to stay for the closing and, and think as we wrap things up. Okay, yeah. Um, Good. So, so the, the, this is a lot of people in a small space. So I want you to uh, sit very close to <laughs> your partner, um, and so that you don't have to speak too loud. And the person who's listening, you can, you can. There are two levels. You can do the normal level, which can involve nodding or nonverbal responses, or you can do the upgrade, which involves n- the, the not no response at all. Uh, 
which is just a practice. It's not something we recommend doing outside of here. <laughs> so, um, so find somebody to work with, get close together, and um, I'll ring a bell in about five minutes. So, if you can wrap that up, that one up. Hang on one minute. Jim, will you give me... Thank you. So, um, let's just come to close your eyes for a moment. Take a breath. And just notice all the energy that comes from speaking and from listening. And this is why we have silent retreats. It's very stimulating to talk and to listen. So now you'll switch roles. The speaker becomes the listener and the listener becomes the speaker and talking about your triggers. You can thank your partner and come back uh, into the group. Thank you for uh, trying that exercise. Any uh, comments or uh, anything anyone would like to share? On yes. Oh, here it comes. Three, two, one. I think the thing that uh, surprised me is, uh, in my ego fashion, I've always thought I was a good listener. Uh-huh. As I was listening. I couldn't believe the commentary that I had going and how much I wanted to participate as I was supposed to be listening. It was almost talk about a compulsion. Yeah. It was overwhelming. Wow. And to stay in a place where I was actively listening and not responding, I found really difficult. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's seeing the powerlessness, right? That's like a first step. And, it, and that's revealing something to you then that you can do something about, right? It's like, wow. And then, you, and when you practice this, after a while, you get better at it. And it's really powerful to be able to just drop your thoughts and listen to someone. It, it actually allows our own wisdom to come forth because what's that commentary stuff is, again, is our ego wanting to jump in and say, I'm going to tell my story. And it covers over the deeper wisdom that's in us that we can share that's, that is valuable to, to give us feedback in a normal conversation. So this is like to, to learn to let go of that surface noise is the way we get to the, the real wisdom. And it's a practice, just like any kind of meditation is a practice. You have to you know, do it repeatedly to be able to get, get comfortable with it. Well, thank you for sharing. You got. Um, I realized, like, when I was listening to my partner, I always thought that listening would be easier, but Mm -hmm. it was actually kind of harder for me. Like, I'd look into her eyes and I'd start giggling. Like, I start thinking like crazy. I mean, things like I'm out here. I'll try to listen, but I'm giggling and I'm thinking about my thoughts. I'm thinking of commentary, kind of. Yeah. The lady was saying, 
And then as I'm talking, I could look her straight in the eyes and keep on going. Mm -hmm. And that one was easier for me Mm -hmm. to talk and look someone in the eyes and just listen. I I get kind of all crazy and start thinking. So, yeah, I mean, it's much like when we sit down to meditate and sometimes we become very self-conscious about the breath. And all of a sudden, kind of... We find ourselves breathing too deeply or too shallow, but it's the same. Thing. I think it's just that's just sort of an initial thing of like this is very unnatural, and you and you kind of you know your your mind does can get like kind of well what what am I going to do with this? But yeah, I think it's I think it's worth working with and kind of getting through that to the to the place of really being present there. Thank you. Did you have something? I think uh, when when speaking, uh, one putting your hand on your heart definitely helps yeah. uh, for truth. Um, but using the buzzwords like you said, like I feel like, mm-hmm. or um, I think, sometimes I'm this way, yeah. really opens up that your your heart to really to really speak truly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because when you say it like that, I I always say I always do this way, yeah. or, or I'm always, you know. Yeah. This sure. is the way I think, you know, yeah. and it's so definitive. I think when you when you, you say it like that, it it changes the way that you talk. Yeah, and when we when we use those absolute terms, uh, we are defining ourselves, and we are tra- we are creating something more solid about who we are, and we're giving ourselves less opportunity for change. Uh, and so there's a way in which we're then creating our own reality through our word, through our language. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I had a question about eye contact. I notice with both myself and my partner that when we were talking, we had a harder time keeping eye contact. And when we were listening, both of us were able to keep eye contact uh-huh much more easily. Do you have a comment about that? Well, I think it's just cultural. That's the way we do it in our culture. The person who's listening typically just keeps looking at the person. The person who's speaking will look away and then look back. I'm not sure if it's cultural or whatever. I mean, I don't know what they do in other cultures. It's the only one I've been in, but, but uh, I mean, that I've lived in extensively. Um, but I think it's just a... a uh, a fo- uh, just a form, a culturally imposed form. I, um, I mean, uh, you could interpret it. I try to understand. You know, you could go more. You could say why it's that way. But uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't know how important it is. I think it's. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't thought through why that's that way, but I could come up with something for next week if you want. I just noticed when I was looking away, it was because I was needing to think, and yeah. and having the right. eye contact, it, it almost made it harder to think in my own head. Yeah, there's that self-consciousness there. Yeah, yeah, and the person who's listening is kind of if they look away, that's an indication that they're not listening. Yeah. So that's the way, that's how we know that's how we know they're listening. Whereas if somebody's speaking to you, you can there's words coming out of their mouth, so you know they're speaking to you. You know, and they don't have to look at you. Yeah. So there was a hand up back there. Did you? Yeah. 
Go ahead. Uh, I noticed it was a lot harder for me when it was my turn to speak, and I felt very self-critical that my it wasn't making sense. It was, and I kept trying to think, no, is it true? Well, I don't know if it's true. I haven't had time to think about if it's true. I don't. And I, I just got all uh, caught up. I found it much easier when my task was just to be there. Yeah. And yeah. when I was having to produce this, I, I was this what he meant? No, is this? What, I, you know, I just found it much, much more difficult. And I wish I had remembered actually, like to put my hand on mm-hmm. my heart. It's like I was really struggling to find mm-hmm. something <laughs> to yeah. hold on to because. Yeah. Uh, that you said that we sort of know what we were before we actually go to speak. I didn't know what I was going to do before I spoke. So anyway, that's what I noticed. You know, uh, what this kind of exercise does, I think, and, you know, meditation does this too, but this this is very in your face, you know, is, is that it makes you do something slightly unnatural. And through doing that, re- it reveals things about us. I could say about you, but you know about us that we might not see in our normal grooves that we live in. So it's it's an insight practice. You know, this is an insight practice. We get insights about ourselves through this, about our habitual ways of being. And when we have insights, then we have the opportunity if we are mindful, to make choices about that or say, oh, I see that about myself. And, th- no, there's, various, there's, there's different things about those kind of insights. One is that we first have to kind of just see it, and we have to accept it, too. We don't have to, but it's, rec- you know, it's a lot easier if we accept it. Right? And then we can say, is there something I can do about this? Not necessarily, I need to change, you know, but... You know, or maybe, maybe there's nothing I can do about it. Or maybe it's okay. You know, I forgive myself for being that way. You know, or maybe I just felt that way. Right? That you know, it just we don't have to necessarily fix it, but it gives us that opportunity. It reveals it reveals something to us that then we can say, oh, do I want to do something about this? And what do I need to do? Do I need to accept this? Do I do I want to change it? And and all of that. So it's that's the value of these exercises for us. I mean, the, you know, the first effect of it can be, oh, my God, you know, I'm so this and I'm so that. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing that happens when you sit down and try to follow your breath. Oh, my God, I'm always thinking about shopping, you know, or whatever, you know. I thought I was so spiritual, you know. I mean, I spend a lot of time packing suitcases in my mind because I travel a lot. And I'm, that's the one thing when you travel, there's not much you can control except what's in your suitcase. So that's my reaction. Oh, no, that T-shirt. No, I'm not sure that one. You know, because you only have room for two T-shirts. And, you know, what if it gets cold? Maybe I should get a long sleeve. You know, and it's like, wow. I, I haven't done much about that in terms of insight, but I've, I've, I, have, I haven't had a transformative insight. Unfortunately, I've just had the insight. So uh, I really want to end on time, which means we're going to have to end in well now. But uh, so uh, just two things before we close. Um, One is I want to let you know 
I just opened up my notes and realized, oh, there's a nice thing. I have one of these flyers. I'm teaching a seven-day Dharma of Recovery retreat at Spirit Rock at the end of this month with John Travis and Heather Sundberg. Um, it'll be a pretty great retreat. It'll be the first time at Spirit Rock. Well, no, Noah Levine taught a similar retreat last year, but this will be the first time they've had me do it. <laughs> they've had upgrade. Uh, <laughs> Noah is a good friend of mine, so I'm. Uh, so if you're interested in that, there's one flyer. Of course, it's on Spirit Rock's website, and there may be some flyers here. I don't know. Um, and the other thing is, I want to give you some homework, so that you know that you're taking a class. Uh, absolutely, you, get, you can give yourself all the credit you want. <laughs> Self-crediting. Self-credited. <laughs> But since there's no self, you're in trouble. Anyway. Uh, so uh, we will start to look at, we'll get into step two and step three next week. And what I'd like you to just contemplate this week, uh, we, sometimes I do it as an exercise, and maybe we will do it as an exercise, but uh, if not, you will have already contemplated it. Uh, your spiritual history. So your what... The step uh, step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. So, what are the things that led you up to right now in your beliefs? What are, you know, what are your beliefs now, and how did you get here? So that can involve really looking back over your life, and you can write it down. That's one way to do it. If you want to do that, you can share it with someone if you want, or just think about it when you're driving or whatever. Um, and kind of go through your life, the major stages of spiritual or non-spiritual experiences and things that kind of shaped you. That, and, and the purpose of that is to kind of see how conditioned our beliefs are. You know, that there are, we think of our beliefs as being true. That's why we believe them. But what sh- when we see that they're conditioned, we realize that they were, you know, they're just thoughts. Right? So to to look at that, if you so choose. So let's just do uh, a moment of offering merit. So this is the way that we give away the work we do in Buddhist practice. May the work we've done tonight trying to penetrate to the truth, trying to cultivate mindfulness and compassion and wisdom. May this work be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from addiction and the obsession and compulsion to act on addiction. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings experience the joy of liberating insight. Thank you, and I hope you will all come back next week.